On December 5, 2023, the U.S. House of Representatives Education and Workforce Committee heard testimony from the presidents of three prestigious universities, Harvard University, the University of Pennsylvania, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They were there to discuss the presence of anti-Semitism on their campuses and the experiences of their Jewish students. One of the most contentious moments of that hearing came when Representative Elise Stefanik, a Republican from New York, asked the following question to Claudine Gay, Elizabeth McGill, and Sally Kornbluth, the presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT, respectively. Dr. Gay, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules on bullying and harassment? As MIT President Sally Kornbluth later responded, no chance explicitly called for the genocide of the Jewish people. But some argue that several slogans should be categorized as such, including from the river to the sea and globalize the intifada, a reference to major Palestinian uprisings against Israel. Nevertheless, the president's responses were criticized. Here's Claudine Gay, the former president of Harvard. And if the context in which that language is used amounts to bullying and harassment, then we take, we take action against it. And Sally Kornbluth, the president of MIT. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. And here's Liz McGill, the former president of UPenn. If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. It is a context-dependent decision. Their testimony ignited calls for the resignation. Liz McGill did four days later. As the New York Times explains, quote, Influential graduates questioned McGill's leadership, wealthy contributors moved to withdraw donations, and public officials besieged the university to oust its president, end quote. Claudine Gay resigned a month later on January 2nd, six months after she became Harvard's first black president, marking the shortest tenure of any of Harvard's presidents. The Harvard Crimson reported, quote, Backlash from her disastrous congressional testimony spiraled into allegations of plagiarism and doubts about her personal academic integrity, end quote. These allegations were first broken by conservative publications like the Washington Free Beacon, as well as activist Christopher Rufo, who has long battled against quote-unquote wokeism and diversity initiatives. After the December hearing, Claudine Gay initially resisted calls for her resignation from donors and right-wing voices, including Representative Elise Stefanik. Harvard's highest governing body initially supported her after hundreds of faculty signed a petition asking the university to, quote, resist political pressures that are at odds with Harvard's commitment to academic freedom, end quote. The leader of the House Committee on Education, Representative Virginia Fox, has said that the committee seeks to investigate anti-Semitism on other college campuses, while billionaire Bill Ackman promised to investigate plagiarism in all faculty and board members at MIT. So the question is, can higher education survive outside pressure and scrutiny, especially from donors and political figures? I talked to UCSB Professor Emeritus Chris Newfield to hear his thoughts. Um, yeah, I'm Chris Newfield, and I taught for 30 years in the English department there at UCSB, and I am now the director of research at the Independent Social Research Foundation, which is based in London. So I just, I, I spent a lot of time, I wrote um, three books on higher education policy, had a blog for years called Remaking the University that covered a bunch of policy issues with a historian at UCLA named Michael Morans. So it was really fun and we tried to create a kind of um, counter narrative about what universities are and how they should be funded and what should happen in them. So 
sort of moving into the influence of political pressure, although Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, initially refused to resign, she ultimately did after allegations of plagiarism initially brought by right-wing activists and this right-wing website but that were later acknowledged by Harvard. Terry Hartle, a senior fellow at the American Council on Education, said that in this case, plagiarism was, quote, weaponized. How do you perceive that claim? Yeah, I, you know, I read the Harvard Crimson piece that was the one that, as far as I could tell, did the most thorough side-by-side -side comparison about uh, the plagiarism um, passages or allegedly plagiarized. Um, I thought it was pretty sloppy. And uh, many of the people who become senior administrators are not the, the greatest scholars on the faculty. It's kind of a different track. And so my feeling was, okay, well, they're, you know, this was, this was not really great. On the other hand, it, it is possible to forget to put the closed quotes on something and then think, oh, this isn't a quotation, this is me, and then cut the first part. And, you know, so it's, to me, it's not really, um, if you just look at any given thing, it's not a firing offense. It's probably accidental. I didn't really pick up a sense of, you know, intention to defraud and so on. I just, for me, it just meant that, you know, she was a bit more mediocre than I expected. And I think it, 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 it's true that it got weaponized in the sense that it was then used as the final excuse to push her out when Harvard correctly, and the, the board did not, and, you know, chop off her head because she wasn't fabulous in the House of Representatives hearing. Right. And I remember that you know, hundreds, I think like over 600 of the Harvard faculty initially supported her after, you know, she was facing calls for her resignation. Yeah, here's the thing. So they would want to look at their procedures if they overlooked something in her academic record that could be a vulnerability later for the person who's at the top of a university that sees itself as the greatest university in the history of the planet, right? But um, the... What I'm very disturbed about is that in addition to the sort of the witch hunt kind of atmosphere is that they caved in and sacrificed the first black woman who had been president of that institution. I mean, tremendously important um, thing, not only not just as a symbol, but as a as a sensibility, you know, as a as a consciousness, as a somebody who understands a bunch of things that the in the long history of Harvard presidents that have not been understood, you know. And she lasted six months, they, and they couldn't defend her. I mean, what is the point of being Harvard if you can't defend your own president against this kind of political bullying? It's just, I mean, that, the real failure here is that they changed their mind about her after another wave of pressure came down on them. I don't think they're, just from my sense of the plagiarism charge, or they suddenly learned some, oh, this is really plagiarism that made them change their mind. I think it was just the politics. So Representative Virginia Fox, a, a Republican from North Carolina, she chairs the Education Committee. She was saying that institutions of higher education have thought of themselves as sacred cows. In your, in your opinion, are universities too insulated and beyond reproach? Should they be? And has this changed since the December hearing? I um, I think that universities have been under consistent political attack for my entire adult life. And 
in particular, I mean, it started in the 60s, sort of before I was following anything, you know, I was alive, but the real uh, shift was in the late 80s when the, you know, culture wars around, you know, integrating the humanities curriculum by teaching Toni Morrison at Stanford, you know, in 1986. I mean, these kind of controversies got mixed into conservative politics and that has never stopped. It's had several waves. We're in a wave right now, um, following Trump's defeat in the you know 2020 election, really ramped up this whole campaign because it it's a cause that agitates the base. I don't think that they're sacred cows. I think that they're targets of just continuous political flack. And she, you know, she Virginia Fox's opening statement should have been contested by the president's because it said Harvard was anti-Semitic in the 1920s when it had a quota that limited uh, the proportion of the incoming class that could be Jewish. And there's still bastions, of, I'm paraphrasing her, of anti-Semitism. And it's like, no, that was a hundred years ago. And you, know, you have to come up with evidence of something now, which of course was what that hearing was about, um, in order to make the claim that you made in your opening statement. I mean, she didn't say we're investigating this. She just asserted as a fact on the basis of 100-year-old evidence. So that to me is not a sign that sacred cows is just a sign of um, political bullying as a more or less constant feature of the American political landscape towards universities, towards educated people, towards knowledge, um, towards expertise towards the procedures by which the tedious procedures by which professional you know knowledge creators produce knowledge and also towards students who are racially more diverse than they were 30 years ago and who are you know growing up in a world in which they are not turning into republicans in the same numbers and where they're going to challenge a whole bunch of things that virginia fox's generation has laid down so i i think there's really a political campaign that's around trying to keep Republicans um, in minority control of most of the government as they currently are, not a real concern with either anti-Semitism, which is a real thing, or with um, making universities healthier sites of objective knowledge creation. It's not what they're doing. Yeah, I mean... You know, we know that conservatives have attacked higher education in the past, as you're saying, and for its often purported left-leaning bias. And, you know, this makes me think about, of course, we've heard very recently about new policies at Florida's universities under DeSantis. For context, in the summer of 2022, Governor Ron DeSantis signed the Individual Freedom Act, nicknamed the Stop Woke Act. The bill left it to educators to determine what subjects would be off-limits in their classrooms. As the Tampa Bay Times explains, it banned teachings that would make people feel, quote, guilt, anguish, or other psychological distress relating to things like race, national origin, and sex. As of January 2023, the law is not being upheld in higher education after a U.S. District Court judge issued an injunction against it. Governor DeSantis also signed a bill in 2022 that required tenured faculty at Florida's public universities to undergo a review every five years, which critics said jeopardized academic freedom. Then, Governor DeSantis appointed several new trustees to the new College of Florida, 
including conservative activist Christopher Rufo, who, as we said earlier, spearheaded plagiarism allegations against Harvard's Claudine Gay late last year and early this year. But also this has been going on for a very long time, as you said, back to the 80s, and then, you know, also sort of back to the 50s when William Buckley Jr. was criticizing Yale in his book. So um, it's just interesting to see that this trend is still continuing so many decades later. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a constant. There was a, a really great book that kind of crystallized this called Anti-Intellectualism in America. It was written by a Colombian historian named last name Hofstadter. And it came out 60 years ago. <laughs> it's just, you read it and it's like, oh yeah, this is right now. You know, the names have changed and some of the terms, but basic structure is very familiar. I've seen people call this hearing a big shift from how Congress dealt with universities in the past. Could you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that relationship prior to this hearing? Because I understand that it's usually the Department of Education who would normally investigate complaints of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's an administrative um, an investigative power here is involved with the titles of um, the federal education acts, higher education acts that that keep being renewed. Titles are added to them that involve. Um, sexual harassment, um, racial discrimination, a range of issues that, a range of behaviors that recipients of federal money are not allowed to engage in and that they must police and, um, you know, and, and assess and have hearing procedures in order to deal with. So yes, that's true, that if that would be the normal process if you're, if um, bias is cropping up in some systematic way um, in favor of the Palestinian perspective, which is not something that I personally have seen. Um, and, you know, it feels like you can't get a fair hearing in classes on a systematic level as opposed to this professor or that professor, which is really an internal university issue, the department chair, for example. Then um, then you would you could bring a formal complaint to the Department of Education and they would, if they found there was merit to the complaint, if it was a big enough pattern, to deserve resources being allocated, they would look into it. This, I mean, the, the political stuntsmanship is a constant of American politics. So I don't know that this is really a turning point. I just think the um, the aggressiveness of the uh, Republican relationship to education in general and public education more specifically, and then higher education on top of that with these very powerful institutions, Harvard, you know, being a exhibit A, MIT being exhibit B, um, that this has kind of brought it to consciousness in a way that maybe it wasn't. I mean, I know people have been following book banning and the other stuff Republicans have been doing since 2020, you know, or at, ramped up since 2020, what DeSantis has been doing in Florida. I don't know if you all have been following that, but this is part of the pattern. It's not a new um, invention of Republicans. I was just about to ask that if it was, you know, a change or just a continuation. So thank you for. Yeah, it's a, it's a continuation. And, and Virginia Fox has been off and on the head of that committee. Uh, I think when George Bush was president, she ran it at least for part of the time. I, I'm, you know, I'm not, don't quote me on that. And 
I believe that for part of Trump's presidency, or no, part of Obama's presidency when the, yeah, it was Obama, when um, the Republicans captured the House in 2010, she was back in there. Now, she's been doing this forever. So her, she's has, you know, it's like a lifetime crusade to her. And there's a huge apparatus that does this and has been doing it for decades. I want to ask you about the influence of donors on these mm. universities, because that was another big point of contention surrounding these hearings that many high profile donors were calling for these presidents to resign. You know, how can universities ensure that they have these donor support without, you know, caving to these donors? They can do it by having protocols and regulations and rules about taking money from people. And they're, those are still on the books. I mean, they, they've exist, those have existed at the University of California and every university I know about for a long time. And the basic rule is that you were delighted that you are interested in supporting research and teaching and the construction of facilities and the various things that donors give money for. But you understand that academic freedom requires that we decide the details of how the money is used and that you don't. So you give the money and you go away and your name goes on the building, but you're not part of the, for example, the design of the building. You don't decide who sits where, which departments are there, what kind of activities go on, who is hired to do those activities, which professors are, are, um, in, the, are in the chairs and so on. I mean, an example that I know because it, it affected a family friend who since passed away is in the 1980s at UCSB, before I arrived, um, uh, really, from my point of view, as a family friend, a really lovely guy who's very interested in Nietzsche, the philosopher, wanted to give the philosophy department at UCSB a million dollars. It was more than the minimum for an endowed chair at that time to endow a professorship in Nietzsche studies. And they negotiated for a while and the department finally got the idea that the family friend was really gonna try to be involved in who was hired, what their approach was, and would wanna show up at everything and be friends with the professor and so on. So they turned the money down. I just heard about this as a dinner that he had for my, my mother and his kids that, that I was at, you know, he, he laughed about it and he thought it was kind of funny, but then he said, yeah, I probably, they were probably right about me. I probably tried to control it. So that didn't happen. And I did something else with this million dollars for Nietzsche, you know, for the great glory of Friedrich Nietzsche. That's, that's a department behaving correctly. And the difference was in the 1980s, UCSB had a more money in real terms per student than it has now, especially from the state. So the philosophy department thought, hey, if we don't get it from this guy, we'll just get it from the in the usual way through state taxpayer allocations. It'll be fun. Now everybody's desperate. There have been you know four major rounds of cuts at the University of California, in spite of what you may read in the LA Times. Governor Newsom, like Governor Brown before him, has no intention of building funding for the University of California back up to where it was in, you know, adjusted dollars. So people are 
you know, everybody just has their hand out. And I, my personal view is that compromises are therefore made with interventionist donors with the, you know, where the university has the best of intentions and thinks we can really, we can manage this. We can manage this donor. Donor management is a field now. And we'll make all the right noises and it'll be fine because we need a million dollars or whatever it is. So that, the idea, the theory is real academic freedom for the knowledge creators and the knowledge disseminators, that is the researchers and the instructors, because that is the only way that valid knowledge is produced, right? Valid knowledge requires a lack of interference from the state, from the church, and from the business class that has more money than God. And the practice is not that so much anymore. I mean, I, CSB has the great example of Munger Hall. Yeah, I was just about to bring that up. I was like, this is, you know, something that we've seen as students play out in our own lifetime. Well, let me, let me just say one more thing about that, because this is an important case. So you're... You're, are you from California or not from California? You are. Okay. So your family and you, when you were working, paid taxes on your income to the state of California. The theory was that the state would then fund a whole bunch of things that the that are good for the people of California. And one of those things is higher education. So it was it was free, right? When, like when my mother went to UCSB when it was a teacher's college, in the 1950s, before it was really a full-fledged UC campus, she spent $45 a year on, and they were administrative freeze fees because the education was zero. And the deal was, this is what we do for our children. And the unspoken premise was all the children are white. And when that stopped being true, people started rethinking it. And there was a whole bunch of politics and, you know, and that's, kind of when the you know the 80s and 90s when tuition started getting dialing up dialed up in large part because the state contributions started getting dialed down so as part of that state contribution they floated bonds for capital construction and that includes classroom buildings laboratory buildings and other facilities very much including student dormitories and the idea there was it would be below market. You wouldn't be paying Santa Barbara prices or Santa Cruz prices or Berkeley prices for, you know, open market rent. You would, your students, you don't have any money. You're not making money. You're not, you know, you're not really supposed to be working 30 hours a week while you're at university. So we're going to put you in, you're going to have a roommate, but, but it will, um, basically we're going to pay for affordable housing for you, the student. In 2006, the state basically stopped floating bonds for University of California capital projects. So the Santa Barbara campus and all the other campuses had to figure out other modes of, of um, building. And that's where private money became more important. You know, there was another kind of bond that started, that was developed, that required, that was funded basically on revenues called lease revenue bonds. It's not... It's actually great for if undergraduates understand a little bit of this detail because it explains why your life is the way it is, right? Lease revenue bonds as opposed to general obligation bonds has changed your life, even though probably nobody's really talked too much about it. 
And then one of the one of the other um, hopes was that private donors would start building these buildings. Okay, so at least some piece of it. So in Charlie Monger's case, he gave two hundred million dollars for a building that was going to cost one point five billion. So the campus and the system was were still on the hook for the vast majority of the cost. The problem with Charlie Munger was that he decided that he had had a, a breakthrough in architectural design that only he understood and that he then stipulated the design of the building that he was going to give money for. That is exactly how fundraising should not work. You know, it's like he's been very generous with the campus. He gave lovely property, built a physics storm for um, certain kinds of researchers that come and stay for a while. And he was going to build this, but the, the art of donor management is, Charlie, we cannot build it the way you want to build it. And you can't ask us to. And when the, when we finally, the design is finally leaked, you can't go around calling everybody an idiot who doesn't agree with your design. It's just like, you know, it was, it was in some ways just, you know, we really spiraled completely out of control. I feel badly for everybody who was involved. <laughs> and hopefully it will never be built. You know, it's just like, hopefully it really is dead. Although I personally don't believe it is until I see the signed statement from the office of the chancellor and from the bunker state. So anyway, th this is, this is, I, this is way longer than you want or need, but it's a, it's a textbook case of, um, philanthropy um, off the rails. How do you feel about the future of academic freedom and autonomy? Can higher education as it is survive the scrutiny, this outside influence from donors and political pressure? I am compulsively optimistic about education just because it's so transformative of people. So we're not gonna give up on it and we're gonna figure out how to save it for your generation and coming generations after, but um, it's going to be a fight. There's going to have to be a big series of fights because the current theory in which private money is just as good as public is false. Private money comes with strings and wealthy people did not become wealthy by refusing to pull strings. You know, the, the, the whole, the framing of giving has to be changed so that that it's kind of hands off the the educational activities. Otherwise, the whole thing is going to become mediocre. We can solve all these problems. It will be easier to solve them if um, people, you know, students, undergraduate students, graduate students get involved along with um, faculty and staff in, you know, understanding how the university works and then pushing for the policies that make it stronger rather than weaker. Thank you for listening. With KCSB News, I'm Joyce Chi.